Two of my favourite things in the world are people who are making a positive difference and chocolate. So when I heard about that chocolate movement, I had to tell you more. That chocolate is a vegan, allergy-friendly, mind-blowingly delicious bar of chocolate made right here in Australia. And for every bar of chocolate you buy through that chocolate movement, one meal is donated to a child in poverty. They've donated tens of thousands of meals to hungry kids so far. So if you're after a yummy treat and you want to do some good in the world too, check out thatchocolatemovement.com. And for a discount, use Celeb Kind at the checkout. From Sydney. Connecting now. Through the world. Through the world. No gossip, no bullying, no shaming. Just the inspiring stuff. This is Celebrity Kind with your host, Nahal. Celebrity Kind. Hello, it's Nahal and you're listening to the podcast about all the stuff celebrities are doing to make the world a little better. My guest today is Aussie journalist, documentary maker, media commentator and all-round awesome human Jan Fran. You'll know her from her viral videos, The Frant, Channel 10's The Project and formerly The Feed on SBS. She's also got like a million podcasts out there. Jan is just such an important voice in the Australian media scene. She's so bloody smart and she's so articulate and she's all about owning who you are no matter what your background. So of course I had to have her on the show. All right, let's do the Celebrity Kind Top 3, then let's chat to Jan. Number 3. Princess Charlotte, the only daughter of Prince William and Duchess Catherine, has spent the days leading up to her fifth birthday delivering meals to senior citizens isolated due to the coronavirus crisis. Number 2. Angelina Jolie is urging the world to recognise the pandemic's impact on children and refugees. The filmmaker and actress, who also does a lot of work with the UNHCR, has taken part in the Time 100 talks. And what she basically says is that long before the virus, there were so many millions of children and refugees in need across the world. And now things are getting worse. As a global community, we need to be aware of this so that we can take action. Number one. And the number one story, Hollywood star and filmmaker Joaquin Phoenix and dozens of other celebrities have signed a petition urging US Congress to pass laws protecting big cats after the Tiger King series was released. Now, if you've watched it, the Big Cat Public Safety Act is the law Carol Baskin was trying to push through. If you haven't watched it, where have you been? You need to get on this. But basically, it's a proposed bill that would stop people from keeping lions and tigers in their homes, which apparently a lot of people do in the US. There are thousands more tigers living in captivity in America than there are left in the wild. You can find the link to the petition and many more inspiring celebrity news stories at www.celebritykind.com. Jan Fran, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. All right, I'm going to start by asking you the question I've been asking everyone on this quarantine season of the podcast. On a scale of one to Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's hanging out with his pet ponies (laughs) and having daily jacuzzis, how much are you enjoying self-isolation? Look, I'm not quite at Arnie level yet. I don't think anyone is at Arnie level and I don't think most people can actually get to Arnie level regardless of how hard they try. I don't have a pony and I don't have a jacuzzi. But, you know, I've got a I've got a two-bedroom apartment and a husband that I quite like and a cat. <laughs> so I'm okay. I'm okay. Good, good. I'm getting a bit itchy. Like I've got itchy feet, you know. I haven't been out in quite a while, but I think we're all in the same boat. So as far as things go, on a scale from one to Arnie, I'm two. <laughs> <laughs> but are you, are you one of those people who's like baking and learning a new language and exercising every day? Or are you just like, I'm getting by as best as I can and that's it? I'm one of those people who's now playing chess. Wow. Did you not play <laughs> chess before? I haven't played chess in maybe two decades. I learned to play chess as a child. I mean, not very well, just sort of recreationally. Yep. 
And um, and I seem to have kind of taken it back up in the last few weeks. Just just me and a computer. <laughs> I'm not I'm not playing with anyone. I'm just playing against a computer. But sometimes hours just go by in the day where I think, what what did I just do? I just it, it all just went on a chess game, basically. That's hilarious. Yeah, play, playing chess, doing more cooking, definitely cooking more and cooking better. And um, I am exercising more. That's great. So you guys mm. are like keeping busy and and you know. <laughs> playing chess and <laughs> which is very good for your mind. That's fantastic. Yeah, trying to. So what would you be doing if you weren't in self-isolation right now? I had a lot of events scheduled, you know, going into offices for work rather than working from home, seeing all of my mates, seeing my family is the big one yeah. that I really miss. I haven't been to my parents' house in a while, six weeks. I'd definitely be going over there more. Traveling, you know, going for like weekends away. Yeah. Just doing all of that good, wholesome stuff. Yeah. So you posted a message on social media last week and like a lot of things you do, Jan, it's gone viral and I'm just going to read part of it out for our listeners. So you said, maybe I'm wrong, but none of the spicy let the virus spread to save the economy hot takes are written by poor, sick or disabled people. And then you go on to say the diplomatic thing to say would be to suggest your view of humanity might be a tad distorted, a tad reductionist, that you have flattened what it means to be human. The slightly less diplomatic thing would be to tell you to take your money, your privilege, your voice, your health, your agency, your assets, your savings, your contacts, your thoughts and opinions and shove them up your ass. But I'm diplomatic. So I won't say that. This is why I love you, Jan, and you are just so loved in general. You have this knack for stepping back and looking at the bigger picture, and you always bring an element of like humanity and morality to all discussions. So is that, I mean, what you were hoping to achieve in that message? Oh, thanks, man. That's a very generous reading of, of what I do. I, re- I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I'm probably not as generous a reader of myself. The The thing that sort of motivates me is a feeling of, I, I don't even know what the feeling is because it's not anger. I'm not necessarily anger. I don't feel necessarily righteously angry, which can sometimes be what those things might read as. It's just a feeling of like, there's just so much bullshit here. I think we just need to cut the bullshit. I think we just need to be, just say what it is that you want to say. You know, it's a bit of a kind of pulling the curtain away from the wizard sort of thing, which I almost feel like I I, I almost have this compulsion to need to do because I'm, I I won't, I won't say I'm a cynical person. I'm not cynical necessarily, but I'm, but I'm always like, "Mm," just looking for the things that are a bit off or that are a bit a bit questionable or trying to read between the lines as much as possible. Yeah, you know? I've heard you refer to it as you've got like a really good bullshit detector, <laughs> which yeah. is a great way to describe it. <laughs> sort of. Or if it's not a bullshit detector, it's a it's a detector that detects something that might turn out to be bullshit or it might turn out to be completely <laughs> fine. Like I could be wrong, Yeah, you yep. know, but it's a, it's a preliminary detector. Yeah. And so that's sort of what kind of drives me to write the things that I write and to say the things that I say. So I have to tell you, Jan, I've been researching you the past few days and I think we're the same person. Oh, okay. Listen to this. There's the obvious stuff, right? There's the, you know, you're a journalist, I'm a journalist, you've got a, a podcast, well, you've got a few podcasts, I've got a podcast, but here's where it gets interesting. So you're one of three sisters and I'm one of three sisters. Your parents are from a village in the Middle East. My parents are from a village in the Middle East. You're about 
five foot two. I'm five foot two okay. and a bit. You went to Sydney Uni for a little bit and I went to Sydney Uni. You speak three languages. I speak three languages. You moved to Australia when you were four. I moved to Australia when I was four. Honestly, I reckon. Really? Yeah, yeah. You know what? If you tell me your favourite foods are chocolate and tabbouleh, I will just <laughs> die, Jan. <laughs> well, everyone's favourite foods are chocolate and tabbouleh, for starters. <laughs> for starters, obviously. When, when's your birthday, though? Are you an 83 baby? No, I'm 85. I'm um, I'm I'm there 85. You go. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Oh well. Maybe we're not. Maybe maybe that's the only difference, though. <laughs> no, no. You see, we begin to diverge when you started winning all those Walkley Awards and Mumbrella <laughs> Awards and all that amazing stuff. You see. <laughs> but Lol. but seriously, I was actually quite proud to discover that we have such similar backgrounds because it makes me feel like times are changing and. I actually burst into tears a few weeks ago, Jan. Maybe it was a few months ago. I don't know. I don't know what day of the week it is. But I remember flicking on the TV and there you were on the project next to Walid Ali, who has Egyptian background, and Susie Youssef, who has Lebanese background. And I was like, things are changing. Yeah, man. Do you feel like they are? You know, I do. I do feel like they are. It's funny you mentioned that because I was going to put a post up on Insta about it using that picture. Yeah. It was pretty um, special. It, it was us on the project desk and it was myself, Waleed and Susie. And we were. it looked like we were sitting in a car. We were supposed to mimic sitting in a car. And Rove was hitchhiking, right? So, you know, he was like hitchhiking for us to pick him up on the way. That's, <laughs> that's what the picture was set up to look like. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and I remember, I remember getting that picture back and I, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, this is like maybe the first time ever. I mean, I haven't watched every program in the history of all of Australia, but maybe for the first time ever, you have three people of Middle Eastern background on a prime time commercial television flagship show. You know, like that is that is actually quite huge. It is big. Um, and I actually thought, you know, I thought the next day the papers or somebody would write something about it because I thought it was such a big deal. And it just sort of flew under the radar, which in a way is a good thing because it means that it's normal. (laughs) It means that it's just, you know, how it's meant to be. Yeah, well, that was the other thing, right? It's it's this constant negotiation between pointing out the significance of it and not pointing anything out because you want it to be normalised, right? It's like it's the endless struggle that, well, I face, I know a lot of people would probably face that as well. So I was going to post something about it and it was going to be this sort of long reflective piece on, you know, Australian television's changing, this wouldn't have happened five years ago, wouldn't have happened ten years ago, look at where we're at now. And then I actually, I just, I thought to myself, I pivoted to the other camp and just went, you know what, let it just be normal. Let it just fly under the radar like it ain't no thing. I kind of deliberately chose to downplay it because I I just want it to be normal. I just want it to be, you know, relatively unremarkable. Yeah. But I yep. think to get to the position where it is unremarkable to have brown people on television, you need to have brown people on television. You do. <laughs> and in order to have brown people on television, you need people to agitate to have brown people on television. It doesn't just happen, yeah. you know. And so you kind of have to work out, well, which point of the cycle are you in? Which, which, on which part of the spectrum are you in? But I'm so glad, I'm so glad you noticed that because I did too. <laughs> I did. So what was it like when you first started out 10 years ago? Or is it, has it been 10 years? Yeah, it's probably, it's been about 10 years. Yeah. 
uh, a good solid decade. Yeah. What was the Australian media landscape like back then? Well, I was going to say it wasn't it's not too dissimilar to what it is now, but it was it was whiter. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Yep. It was definitely whiter. You know, I remember graduating from UTS in uh, in 2008, and you know, back in 2008, the Fairfax Cadetship was the cadetship that everyone wanted. You know, yep. it was to, to work at the the major papers of the SMA to the the age. Um, you know, Fairfax. And I remember sitting down thinking, okay, well, which direction do I want to go in, you know? And I knew that I wanted to work in television. I didn't want to necessarily work in print. So I looked at my television options. And for me, it it was really SBS and the ABC because the commercial networks, this was, you know, what sort of went on in my mind, were just not interested in people who looked like me. You know, they weren't interested in people who had brown skin and they weren't interested in people who had curly hair. Um, You know, they weren't interested in, in people who didn't fit this kind Kind of really homogenous look, which you turn on commercial television and it's it stares you in the face. Like you, you cannot avoid, you know, seeing a white woman who is relatively slim in a you know monochrome, nice middle class looking garb with coiffed hair, and that just that sort of, that wasn't me. And so I sort of just accepted that as well. That's that's the way it is. You know, that's just the reality. We just have to accept these things that that some places are just not made for people like me. And you know, I didn't really lose that much sleep at night over it. I, I might have like kind of pondered it for a bit and thought, oh, oh well, that's that unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. But you you sort of just internalize those things to the point where you're like, well, get on with it. What can you do? Well, I can apply for, you know, ABC and SBS. And so that's that's what I did. And I think now what's happening is rather than just saying, well, that's the way it is and we should get on with it and explore other avenues, I think people are saying, well, hang on, why is it the way it is? Like why is it that all of the people on commercial television, well, the vast majority anyway, look a certain way? Why is it that I'm only seeing white faces, you know, in my television commercials and in my, you know, television series and on Who Do You Think You Are? You know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. why is it that the face that looks that reflects us on the screen does not actually look like us? You know, I think there's a little bit more interrogation publicly because remember these conversations have been some, some people freak out they're like oh diversity where's where, everyone's talking about diversity now it's like no babe we were talking about it 20 years ago you yeah. just weren't privy to the conversation yeah yeah one you didn't care two you weren't there and three there was no medium by which to reach you and now there is yeah you know so the idea that this diversity conversation has come out of the blue, I mean, that's just that's just bullshit. Anyone who's not white in this country knows yep. that we've been talking about it for a very long time, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's so interesting to hear you say that thing about applying for SBS and ABC because I actually did the exact same thing. So, you know, I, yeah. I, I think what happened with me was I applied for SBS and I didn't get the job and I didn't bother applying for Channel 10 or Channel 7 or Channel 9 because I just didn't think those jobs were for me. And, yeah. you know, I guess here's another spot where we sort of diverge, Jan. For me, I went, okay, I'm not meant to be on Australian TV. I'll do radio instead because no one can see what I look like. You really thought that? I did. You know, whereas mm. I feel like you kind of went, hey, stuff that. I'm here. Take me as I am. And you sort of strutted your way onto Aussie television and have had this like stellar career. So I guess what I want to know is how did you get to a point where you were like, screw what the norm is, I'm going to do this? You know, I think I, I, a big part of that is owed to SBS, really, because SBS had a vision a very long time ago that they were going to start 
the cadetship. I mean, when I say a long time ago, you know, maybe 15 odd years ago, that they were going to start the cadetship. And and in starting the cadetship, they were going to look specifically for people who could speak other languages, people who were connected to multicultural communities in Australia, because that's, that's part of SBS's charter, right? What that ended up doing is that ended up cultivating a group of people within the Australian media landscape that actually wouldn't be there if it wasn't for SBS. Yeah. Like I look at myself, I'm, I'm, I am where I am because SBS saw something in me that saw an asset that the other networks would have seen as a liability, you know. And I'll never forget one thing that a former news director told me at SBS. He said the best thing about SBS is that you leave it. And what he meant by that was SBS cultivates these people and cultivates this talent and then kind of they're out there in the Australian media landscape and suddenly you have all of these sort of non-white journalists. I mean, Yara Bumelum, who is a, you know, multiple Walkley Award winner who now makes documentaries started in the cadetship. Yelda Hakim, who's now at the BBC in London, started the cadetship. Laura Murphy-Oates, who was the young Australian journalist of the year, started with the SBS cadetship. I started with the SBS cadetship. You know, Oscar Sabakti, Jason On, they ended up at the ABC. They started with the SBS cadetship. So there's all of these people who started at SBS specifically because they were talented but also because they spoke another language and were tapped into a particular community. And so you just sort of need that one opportunity for somebody to recognize you as an asset rather than as a liability. And frankly, you know, you'd hope that we'd get to a position where there are enough brown people. Again, I'm doing air quotes. There's no real good language to talk about this kind of stuff, but you all know what I mean. You know, you want to get to a position where there's enough brown people in the Australian media that we don't no longer have to talk about it anymore. We no longer have to engineer it. We no longer have to have cadetships that equalize the fact that there's so many white people and not enough people of color coming up through the ranks. But that's how you do it. You do it by kind of populating the space with with people from different perspectives. So let me ask you this then. Did you face any challenges along the way? I mean, has your ethnicity been an issue at all? I mean, it's an issue in that, you know, I was never going to get a well, very unlikely to get a commercial television job, you know, uh, d- 10 years ago. And also that I might not necessarily get a commercial television job now. I mean, I talk about race quite a lot. I talk about ethnicity quite a lot. I talk about social justice stuff quite a lot. That's not palatable, I think, to, you know, the majority of Australia. That's not breakfast television fodder. No. <laughs> you know, does just some, just somebody, you yeah. know, really want me to be up there talking about like my Lebo eyebrows on, on morning television? No. I don't know. Well, I mean, as, as far as I can tell from what I have seen of, of um, morning television, no, not really. Um, yeah, that's true. We don't know. But, there may be a lot of people out there who would love to hear about your Lebo eyebrows. Yeah. I mean, I but I think that actually there would be. <laughs> it's just not something that has happened because like, babe, everyone's got eyebrow problems, except maybe white people who don't have a lot of eyebrows. <laughs> Everyone else. Which is still a problem, I guess, got, isn't it? <laughs> Which is still, that's still an eyebrow <laughs> exactly. problem, isn't it? You yep. know, that's totally still an eyebrow <laughs> problem. Yeah. But, you know, having said that, I, I like, I, I was on morning television and I have been on commercial television and I'm now on commercial radio. Um, but I think that's partly due to having been able to build a, this is a terrible word to use and no one should ever use this word in reference to themselves. But again, we don't really have the right kind of language, but you're, you're able to build a brand or a name for yourself sort of separate to, mainstream media, which is the internet. You know, we we talk about what sort of allowed me to kind of move around in this space. Well, it was SBS and it was the internet. Yeah. And the internet 
in in the iteration that it exists now, particularly with social media, it wasn't like that two years ago. It definitely wasn't like that five years ago and it definitely wasn't like that 10 years ago, you know. So it's allowed me and people like me, when I say people like me, people who might not necessarily be mainstream or might be talking about fringe issues or minority communities, it's allowed people like that to have their own platform and to cultivate their own spaces and more importantly to cultivate their own audience and following. And there are people out there who want to talk about that kind of stuff and who want to follow people like me and people that are talking about issues that might not necessarily be mainstream. So you grew up in Bankstown in Sydney's West. Did you know when you were little that you wanted to be a journalist? Probably, yeah. I mean, I've always had a sort of curiosity about the world and it was um, – I was always very aware of the power of the press and I think because, you know, I, I'm Lebanese and I grew up at a time where I think the Lebanese community was besieged to some extent, you know. There was the – talk of ethnic gangs and ethnic crime, you know, all this rhetoric that we sort of hear about the Sudanese community in Melbourne at the moment, you know, this it's it's dangerous, it's they're running a market, there's gangs, there's, you know, ethnic crime, they can't integrate, we need to think about immigration and yada yada. This was the exact it was it's almost a replica kind of in terms of the rhetoric of what happened 20 years ago in Sydney with the Lebanese. And so I was always aware coming from a community that was really sort of under a harsh media spotlight, I was always aware about the power of the media and the power of the press and the way that it can actually make you feel, the way, the way it can make you feel quite small. That sat with me for a very long time. Triggered by any specific news stories? Oh, I mean, all of the stories in and around the Lebanese community at the time were negative, you know. The premier of New South Wales at the time, I remember Bob Carr, he said something like, you know, if you if you can't follow Australian law, shape up or ship out. You know, if you can't follow the law in this country, get out. And I just, I remember thinking, wow, <laughs> wow, where really like anyone who's not white is only here on like a good behavior bond, huh? Like you're, we're always just conditionally here aren't we? Like if we fuck up, you know, someone, not just someone, the Premier, the Premier, no less, of New South Wales is going to turn around and go, all right, you fucked up, get out. You broke your good behaviour bond, get out. He would never say that to a white Australian because white Australians are presumed to be Australian. Anyone else is here conditionally. Doesn't matter if they were born here, does not matter if they were born here, as as most of the perpetrators at the time of you know the the crimes were born here. It's this idea that you're you're here conditionally. If you break if you break your conditions, just know that you're not really Australian, yeah. And that's I think something that a lot of kids of diaspora live with in Western countries, particularly second generation, because they see the struggle of their parents who, who are the ones that came out here. And they're not the same as their parents. They are, they're Australian, yeah. you know, they're Australian. They, they give more to this society and they, they're entitled to more from this society. And I think that they feel not quite, they, they feel, you know, almost not, not fully ensconced in this society yeah. sometimes. I so did you feel that? Did you feel like, well, I'm not fully Lebanese and I'm not fully Australian? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel that now. Yeah. Yeah, well. <laughs> less, less, less and less so. Less and less so. 
I'm not Lebanese. I know this because I've been to Lebanon and I'm very different from the people in Lebanon. Now, you might not know that because you haven't been to Lebanon. No worries. If you don't know, now you know. I'm telling you. And I think, I don't know if you would have had a similar experience. Oh, absolutely, yep, know, yep. Where, where you're suddenly, where in, it's funny because we've got sort of like a running joke. It's like when you're in Australia, they call you Lebanese and when you're in Lebanon, yeah. they call you Australian. You yep. know, you're like, can I catch a break here, people? But you realise that that actually, that is your identity, that feeling of not necessarily belonging to anywhere. That's a, that's a quintessential Australian feeling. That's quintessential Australia. That is a feeling that Australians have. And I'd like to see that experience spoken about, recognised, legitimised, represented. And it's not, a, it's not a foreign feeling. It's not a periphery feeling. It's, it's, it's quintessentially Australian. And so I've kind of sort of done a bit of a 180 in my, in my Australianness, realising this whole time I thought I had to change to be Australian. But what I feel and who I am is quintessentially Australian. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of explaining it. It's actually yeah. really, well, really beautiful. You. That is what so many children of immigrants feel. And, you yeah. know, it's it's good to embrace it. One of the best feelings that I kind of realised one day was when I realised how, like, boring and common my story is, where I was like, oh, so many people feel this way. I thought I was the only one. You know, I thought I was the only one in my, you know, teenage bedroom going, I don't feel like I belong. Any So many people feel like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. When you can name it into existence, you know, if you build it, they will come. People will start to say, hey, I, felt, I feel like that as well. And that's what representation is. That's why it's so important to have that because what that is is a naming of an experience that people would otherwise experience alone. And when it becomes a common experience for people, then it becomes a truth. It becomes, you know, a much thicker thread in this the tapestry of this country. Absolutely. So, you know, when your family sees you on television for the first time, they're seeing, you know, their girl who's who's the Lebanese Australian background, and they see that she has smashed all these barriers, smashed through all these ceilings. There you are. What are they thinking? What are they doing? I mean, you know, hey, anytime you're on television, like any <laughs> ethnic parent is going to be extremely proud. Yes, of course. You know, like I think the the proudest moments for my parents was when like I ended up in the Arabic newspaper <laughs> <laughs> rather than any of the other newspapers. Because then all their friends could hear about it. Because then yeah. all the community and their friends, and you know, they could kind of hear about it. But, you know, breaking the stereotypes or whatever – which I, I don't necessarily think I have, maybe. I mean, I'm in sort of two minds about the extent to which I've broken stereotypes. But I, it's, not a, it's not an easy path. No. <laughs> like, you know, it's not a source of pride for a lot of parents to have their children part ways with some of the kind of beliefs that permeate the culture and the religion. It can actually be very, very difficult to walk your own path. And I think a lot of kids growing up in in you know maybe socially conservative communities they know that you know whether you want to be an actor growing up and your parents don't want you to be an actor or whether you know you want to go and live overseas or move out and your parents don't want you to do that it could be you you might be struggling with your sexuality you know you might be gay and try getting that one passed 
Lebanese yeah. parents. I mean, I'd like to think it's changing now, and I think to some extent it is. But let me tell you, you know, when I was growing up, like no one was out. <laughs> no one was out. Like you, it, it meant that you were shunned completely from your family and your community. Yeah. You know? So I think it's it's a it's a double-edged sword, you know, this idea of like taking taking a risk to do what you want to do and to be who who you are it can be a source of pride, but unfortunately in a lot of instances it can also be a source of shame. So you were obviously quite supported by your family. Yeah, I mean I was my parents have always been very supportive of me, for sure. And you know, my growing up with with sisters my father in particular was a very significant role model in our lives you know we always look leds love boys they just do you know (laughs) if you've got a son good on you he's going to carry on the family name and look after you when you're old (laughs) my parents never had sons you know so we but we had always sort of grown up with this idea of like oh i bet dad would want a son and one time we asked him i said dad do you ever wish that you had sons? And he sort of looked at me, you know, quite perplexed and he said, I already have sons. Wow. He said, I've already got three sons. And, yeah, it was it was just this sort of moment of like, oh, we're the same as boys. Yeah. You know. That's, and we, that's huge. That's very, I guess, forward thinking isn't it it's very you know not everybody has that so that's amazing I mean my father is a remarkable human being he really really is and look my mother too no shade you know love my mum she's got extremely admirable qualities she's a legend but I think again kind of growing up in that very patriarchal very masculine community and it was a really masculine time yeah like I, I look at the the boys in my extended family now, they're a lot more open and they're a lot less like macho and there's a lot more integration between the girls and the boys in the family than there was just one generation yeah. ago, you know. So it was this very kind of like masculine macho time, boys were boys, girls were girls. And so to to grow up with a father who you really, really felt as though he – did not see any difference between you and a son. I think that really went away towards, you know, making us quite confident and just and allowing us to believe that we could do anything. Yeah. You know, we could do anything a boy could do, but we, we could do anything. That's amazing. That's great. That is so wonderful to hear. So you are writing a book at the moment. I, have you finished it? Is it still going? No. You're still going. Okay. No, I haven't. <laughs> Oh boy, every time someone mentions the book, I'm like, okay, yes, the book I am. I am writing a book. Yes, are, yes, yes. I, it's going to be okay. Are you allowed to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. I mean, the book is, it's a its a memoir of growing okay, up Lebanese, right. um, sort of in the shadow of the Cronulla riots. Okay. So pretty much everything we've been yeah. talking about pretty much. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's cool. This is really just research yeah. for the book. You know? <laughs> I'm just going to put this all in the book. Yeah. But, you know, very, very similar themes of belonging, of place, of Australia, of identity, of media, of perception, of representation, all of that kind of stuff. And it's sort of just, it's, you know, I'd I'd like to think it's funny. It's being billed as a comedic memoir, (laughs) but, you know, 
I'm going to have to leave that for the reader to decide whether it's actually funny. I have no doubt it'll be funny. How can it not be funny? Anything that comes out of your mouth (laughs) is funny. (laughs) Oh, stop it. Stop. And let me ask you this as well, because you've also become a bit of a style icon, Jan. Did you know that? People are saying you're like the new Li Ling Chin. What? (laughs) Who's saying that? Me. I am saying that. (laughs) Okay. Well, I will accept that as truth and gospel. (laughs) But what I think is so awesome about you is that you're not actually buying any new clothes while you've become this style icon. Can you tell me a bit about how that works? Yeah. Well, look, I've I've always shopped at op shops. Well, when I say always, you know, for definitely for the past few years, you know, five, 10 years, I've always kind of perused op shops, just seen what's around. If there's something, I'll pick it up. I'll, you know, add it to my wardrobe. And then a couple of years, so probably beginning of of last year, beginning of 2019, uh, I just sort of looked at my wardrobe at SBS because I was was still working at SBS at the time. And it was, I was on a sort of a, a nightly news show, which you accumulate quite a lot of clothes when you're on television every single night, you know. And so I looked at the my, my cupboard at SBS. And I had two stylists who were working at SBS at, at the time with me. And we kind of looked at the wardrobe and we were like, man, look at all these clothes. Like I'm I'm never going to wear these clothes yeah. again. What are we going to do with them? You know, like we've amassed all of these, these clothes. And they're very sort of, they were like really kind of, Left of centre is the wrong way to describe them, but the two stylists I work with, the Alexes, I call them, <laughs> they were like really experimental and just loved kind of finding new clothes and new fashion and stuff. And so we kind of just said, you know what, let's just from now on just buy only op shop stuff for work. Like we're not, we're, we're going to buy only used stuff. We're going to swap out some of the stuff that we have and we're just going to buy used stuff basically and we're going to mix and match things and you know we're gonna we're just gonna go all out because we I also wanted to just be like you know I don't want to look the same as everyone else you know so there was an element of a point of difference about it it's like no I want things that are like fun and interesting like I'm on SBS for god's sake I can wear whatever I want you know that's amazing so was there like an environmental sustainability factor behind it all as well yeah definitely because you know you, you look at all of these clothes that you're amassing and you need to kind of be on top of the like style, which changes every few weeks. So you need to get the new stuff. So then the old stuff becomes old. And because it's this kind of you've fed into this really sort of fast fashion cycle, the piece doesn't mean anything. You didn't, it's not a find. You didn't, you know, go rummaging for it somewhere and then it popped up and you were like, wow, look at this piece. You know, the fabrics aren't built to last. And so, you know, we, I was just sort of like, all of this stuff is going to end up in landfill. Yeah. Like, I, honestly, I, I, I don't know, even the stuff in my wardrobe, like, wh- where is it all going to end up? And so I started just really kind of thinking about that. And the more I, I looked into it, like, the, it's, it's pretty full on like fast fashion and the impacts that it's having on the environment, not just because of where it ends up, but also because of how it's made, all of the resources that it takes to make something, the supply chain itself, you know, who is actually making your garments? What kind of conditions are they working in to make the garments that they're making at the speed at which they are making them so that you can, you know, have a new thing every two weeks? Like, is that sustainable? I don't think it is. You know, so all of those sort of elements fed into wanting to just not buy any new clothes for the TV. And, you know, I left SBS in July of last year, so we only did it for six months, but I've kind of just kept up with it. I was like, no, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to do this permanently. I'm just going to see if I can, you know, just not buy 
new clothes permanently. And it has been such a joy. And easy to do? Look, it's easy for me to do. And I kind of, I want to point out that it's not, it's actually not an easy thing for a lot of people to do. You know, you need to be able to access op shops to try it on and whatnot. So you need to sort of be in and around op shops. I live around op shops. I'm a small size. And that's, that's just the reality of op shopping, which I think really sucks that if you're a bigger woman or a bigger man, if you're a bigger person, you're going to have trouble finding nice clothes in op shops. And I would really like to see that change. I think you need as well to, you know, have a, have a bit of time on your hands. Like you need the patience, I think, to have a bit of a rummage around. And you also need to, you know, have some money if you want to actually get the good stuff tailored which is sometimes something that I do. So it's not as accessible as it sounds, but I really hope that the more demand for it there is, the more supply there'll be, Yeah, you know, the more people we've got talking about, you know, fast fashion and the impacts on the environment and the more people deciding to buy reused fashion, vintage fashion, I, I thoroughly hope the more places will cotton onto that and start actually appealing to that customer base. You know what I'd like to see, Jan? I'd like to see everyone in Hollywood get onto this. So at the next like big awards night, I want yeah. them to rewear a dress from the past, whether it's like their own or someone else's. Like I want to see J-Lo coming out in Bjork's funny goose outfit and, you know, Celine Dion wearing J-Lo's green Versace dress. Just stuff like that. Wouldn't it be cool to just see them sort of getting onto it? Because really, if Hollywood does it, everyone seems to follow. Yeah, I would love if, you know, major celebrities took this on as a cause because they sort of drive to some extent the demand for clothing and for, you know, accessories, shoes, coats, hats, whatever it is, you know. They would have a wealth of vintage. Like can you imagine just wearing vintage Mugler just (laughs) – Oh my, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like just just vintage Escada. <laughs> Some people think it's an old lady brand. It is not. <laughs> you know, just, or just all of that really kind of beautiful vintage yep. stuff. I think it's really gorgeous and it has, I don't know, it's, it's sort of, it just makes me very happy. That was a really funny unintended consequence of this was it's so much fun yeah. to do. Yeah, and I can see you that know? in the photos that you post on Instagram. Like they are just – they are fun photos. They're so You are just so full of joy in them and you've got these cool outfits on. So, you know, if my yeah. listeners don't already follow you, uh, why wouldn't they? But if they don't, um, you've got to get onto Jan Fran's Instagram. She's got some great photos of her outfits on there. Jan, <laughs> what is the first thing you're going to do when all this craziness is over? Oh, I'm just going to like bear hug every single person that I know. <laughs> That's yeah. what I'm going to do. Yeah, man. I'm going to go see my parents, I think. Yeah, me too. I'm yeah. going to do the same. You can check out some of Jan's very cool op shop outfits on her Insta page. It's at Jan underscore Fran. And hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, please help me make it grow. Leave me a positive review. Tell your friends and share your favorite episode. I'll be back soon. For more inspiring celebrity news, truth and kindness, check out CelebrityKind.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening to Celebrity Kind.